0: Hi, I'm Claire Bowman, Senior Editor at Host Publications. We've wanted to kick off a podcast that captures the spirit of host for quite some time and figured why not now? We have a vision for what we want this podcast to be, natural, community-oriented conversations about life and literature. But for today, listen to the host editors, myself and Anar Verold, as we talk about how we're faring in these quarantines. We also discuss poems from Mary Rufel and Dulce Maria Loynaz. Thanks for listening.
1: Hi, Anar. Hi, Claire. How's it going? Pretty good. Just miss working with you and miss working in the office.
0: I really do, too. It's, um actually kind of surprising to me how much I miss being around other people. (laughs) As an introvert, I thought, you know, I'd be in my element a little more than I am.
1: Yeah, I was good for like six weeks. And then I was like, Oh, I get a lot of my energy from other people. What have you been doing to uh, keep yourself sane? I have been a workout fiend, obsessed, been doing steel mace, which I know you've Taken up as well because I won't stop talking about it.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: And just spending a lot of time with my family, just kind of establishing new routines, and I've been reading a lot.
0: <laughs> yeah, I've definitely tried to read a lot. Uh, I was good. I was good in the first six weeks, as you said. Um, something changed recently, I have to say. It has been an absolute privilege to be home, mm-hmm. but. Reading has been harder over time. So, what I've noticed is I've started to go a lot more slowly. And at first I was voracious because I think I th- there was only going to be 30 days of this and I needed to take advantage of it as much as possible.
1: Oh no, I think a couple of weeks ago I hit this wall where I felt like I've heard every podcast, I've listened to every song, I've watched every film and television show and I realized that boredom is like creativity's sister. And so I as well was like, oh, I have to get through this. I have to write this thing. Um, I have to take advantage of this time and be productive. And I've noticed that reading slower or taking my time savoring books and films has really been more fruitful somehow. For sure. I think what
0: surprised me so much is how difficult that is for me. That is
1: not how I'm trained
0: to operate. And that's made me sad to realize that it's actually been really hard for me to just sit back and enjoy my books. Yeah. My mind is hypervigilant in the moment where I'm doing nothing or just reading the same poem over and over again. So yeah, lots of lots of deep personal lessons are, are coming forth from this.
1: Yeah, it's this very like, when everything, this is very Rilke-esque. When everything settles, when you're in silence, when the darkness sets in, sorry, my dog's trying to come into the... That's fine. When everything settles, you're left with truth Mm -hmm. and you're left with really contemplating yourself and the world around you and seeing it for what it is. And things about our personality, like I mentioned earlier... I didn't realize how much I actually needed the energy of other people until it was absent. You really begin to learn a lot about yourself when something as jarring as a pandemic and a shelter at home happens. Yeah, and I just, I feel,
0: you know, we've done a lot of work on our blog to try to stay connected to our community and also to put forth, you know, opportunities for people to, to find support or to give support where they can. But the more I think about the sort of the difficulties that others are experiencing, I can't help everyone. Um, That's been a little bit of a, a reeling sensation as well.
1: I've also been fortunate that my own household hasn't been financially impacted, but I'm kind of bracing for that to change. Texas opened up a couple of weeks ago, but employees are being furloughed. A few days ago, it's very unclear and uncertain what the future holds. In this very confusing time, I can also say just season. I've really kind of enjoyed giving in to my emotions. It's been nice to just read really dramatic and really just like frustrated (laughs) books. Um, Sure. This isn't the one that I'm going to talk about, but have you read A Season in Hell? Um...
0: I have read excerpts. What press put this particular edition out? It's such a cool cover.
1: New Directions.
0: Oh, one of my favorites. I love their books so much.
1: Yeah, I believe this is like the original cover of the book that he put out originally. Oh, really? It's really cool artwork. It's been nice as someone that can't just be a complete drama queen 24-7. It's nice to just read such a a dramatic voice. (laughs) These read almost like, soliloquies he's just like shouting into the sky is what it feels like
0: oh yes that is so rambo he really does fill the role of the poet who is in conversation with the cosmos Mm -hmm.
1: um i just opened up to this page um where are we going to battle i am weak the others advance tools weapons time fire fire on me here or i surrender cowards i'll kill myself I'll throw myself under the horse's hooves. Ah, I shall get used to it. It would be the French way of life, the path of honor.
0: Oh, I love it.
1: (laughs) So good. Yes. I'll bring this for you. I'll put it on my pile for you to enjoy. Thank you. I have the problem that many voracious readers have that there's not enough shelf space. Oh, yeah,
0: that is the key issue of poets, writers, and literary folk of our generation. We all live in apartments. None of us have proper bookshelves. I can't tell you how many years I've lived with books on the floor, but um, I've always wanted to have the library from Beauty and the Beast. That's been my childhood dream and my adulthood dream. (laughs) I want to have a library where you need a ladder to get to the top (laughs) shelves.
1: The library book ladder is iconic and should definitely be aspired to.
0: Yeah, I really liked that passage you just read from Rambeau. Reading the work of poets who uh, allow themselves to just dive all the way in to whatever particular emotion they are exploring.
1: I love it. I feel like I personally don't get to dive in like that. Because I know that it's kind of crazy, it's uncivil, it's, it's bad behavior, <laughs> and it's embarrassing for people to see you like that. But I also feel like that's where genius kind of lurks, Absolutely. is in crazy behavior. So you're just like, okay, one day I'll let myself be outrageous, and that day will be the best, most creative day of my life.
0: <laughs> I mean, if not now, then when? You know? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I think that, you know, it, it's a bit of a, an archetype of the poet, right? Is the unhinged poet of the heart, right? Uncivil is the perfect word for it. Uh, deranged, maybe even. <laughs> and those are some of the poets that I, I love the most.
1: Yes, same. I did pick up A Season in Hell because I've been, you know, quarantine happened and you're like, is this two weeks? Is this a month? Is this two months? And in my mind, I've just been calling it the COVID-19 season. But I was organizing my bookshelf the other day and I was like, I would definitely describe this era as a season in hell. (laughs) And I picked it up and it was really satisfying to revisit. I love that you picked it up just because of the
0: title, which is definitely why I picked up this first book. I'm going to talk about, which is called "Absolute Solitude," Ooh. by Dulce Maria Loynaz. Well, she's um, she's a Cuban poet who didn't receive her highest honors as a poet until she was in her nineties. My goodness! The Cervantes Prize. Yeah, she won that when she was, I think, ninety-two, maybe even ninety-four. She was she wasn't even writing anymore. So it took people a long time to recognize her work. And now she's she won this incredibly prestigious prize for Spanish language poets. And so she's very well respected. I know that Gabriela Mistral was a contemporary of hers and someone who also respects her work and they knew each other. But I don't know a ton about her. Um, I definitely chose this book because of the title, Absolute Solitude. I actually already had it and just hadn't gotten around to reading it. And then, of course, this seemed like the perfect time. And it's prose poetry, which uh, sometimes I think is, is really nice to give your mind a break from having to do all that extra work of reading a poem with especially sophisticated line breaks that do so much, which, you know, I'm all about it, but uh, the prose poem. You just kind of get to lay down and relax in a prose poem, I think.
1: You want me to read one of these to you? Yes, will you please?
0: I would love to. They are numbered, so I'm going to read number 54. If you could choose freely from the brightest or from the darkest, if you could pick them out with a trembling hand like a goldsmith who turns a precious metal into a real jewel, If you could fish them from a well like fallen stars, or if you could sharpen them like a sword or weave them like silk, if from all that exists you could prepare them like the wheat from your fields, if you could strip them of their grains, grind them, and feed on them, you still wouldn't have the words that could fill this silence. She is also very dramatic, <laughs> which I love. <laughs> it's all about silence. It's all about solitude, all the things that are happening to me right now. <laughs> uh, so I really love I love the depth with which she's willing to just hang on to those those emotions that are considered melodramatic by our culture.
1: What I really love in in some of the work I've been reading, silence has been a big theme as well is how. It's reminding me that from nothing you can unspool so much. Yes. And it's like, from the observation of silence, she creates these these options for us. And it's like, even if we build these worlds with these two options, there's not enough words. Yeah. It's a wonderful little poem, I think, um,
0: in that it builds and builds all of these images and of course, they're they're lovely, like if you could fish them out from a well like fallen stars or weave them like silk. But in a way that only a poet can do at the end, there's still not enough to fill this silence. And she basically undoes all of the weaving that she's just done. And it's like if you if you've ever knitted it's so easy to unknit <laughs> and you could spend hours on three inches of a knitted scarf and then at the end, just tear it all out. That's kind of what it feels like to me where she's just crafted this beautiful poem and at the end, just kind of dashes it away. Like at the end, what I'm left with is silence and it's so massive and it is so, I don't know, it envelops everything. It envelops all of this and more.
1: And it's beautiful. Is there another poem in there?
0: Yeah, there's so many. This actually is a fat little book. Um, I should say it's put out by Archipelago Books, wonderfully translated from the Spanish by James O'Connor. James O'Connor has an essay that he wrote about her and her life. I believe you can access it from Archipelago Books website. So, yeah, I have to give him a shout out. He's a really great, really great translator of her work.
1: Archipelago makes some
0: very beautiful books. I know, they're so lovely. I love the textured covers. This is poem 109. Everything that was a mountain here, separating my shore from your shore, has been cut down so the sun could also bathe me, and so even the paths of my dry rivers are known. Everything that was flower is singing. Everything that was silence has been said once and for all. The color of my first butterfly is known, and so is the date of my last spring. They have counted the millenniums that led me to crystallize a dawn, shape a cloud, and extinguish there inside my flesh, deaf volcanoes and mysterious geysers of stars. Wise men gave a name to my valleys, measurements to my dreams and solitudes to my solitude. Children aimed their slingshots at my birds, and women wept for the dead women who had never known me as if they wept for they themselves. Now, my friends, it is not my fault if, with all your names, all your lights, and all your anxieties, you could not orbit my waste. It is not my fault that, like the old moon, nobody on earth will ever see the half of me that always remains in darkness.
1: Wow. I'm going to need to borrow that. (laughs) Yeah, you can totally
0: borrow this. It's all marked up with all my favorite poems. I mean, I know that's a lot and you don't have it right in front of you, but just her world building. Yeah. So elemental, including the verbs that she uses. So not just the nouns like mountain and shore and geyser. She's got... The word crystallize and extinguish.
1: Yeah, my mind painted a very geometric astral portrait of this poem. Um, words like measurements and yeah, it felt like there was a lot of lines and um, distance and attention to the body, the waist. Yeah, that line. And and I wonder
0: who is speaking in this poem? Like, is it the earth? I I think that's the obvious metaphor here is that it's the earth speaking but there's just a there's just a part of me especially having read this whole collection that can't divorce this voice from the poet's voice it's all the poet and so in that way like with these lines now my friends it is not my fault if with all your names all your lights and all your anxieties those small little human things right you could not orbit my waste there's it's very planetary and in that way I hear this kind of omnipotent poet's voice. She really doesn't shy away from making these bold, authoritative statements about the world, um, about humanity, about the self in this way that makes her kind of a godlike poet's voice. And I really like that. It's, it's not just a kind of dramatic feeling like in the in the previous poem. It's really got some power behind it, and especially knowing who she was as a poet, just a little bit about who she was as obviously a woman poet, not getting the recognition that she deserved for so long makes it even more powerful to me.
1: It definitely felt almost like a feminine or like a feminist poem. The voice almost felt to me like it was the voice of a woman in a world where the social constructs and the rules are made by men. Yeah. Um, And in the way that we measure the earth, the way that we understand humanity and nature and life is all measured by the way that we have been taught and how it's been shaped by men. Mm -hmm. It feels like there's definitely a power to being in the body of a woman that is not truly accessible to man.
0: Yeah, I agree. Women wept for the dead women who had never known me as if they wept for they themselves. There's there's definitely in that line, which comes towards the end, I think a little bit of a culmination of everything you just said.
1: Did this writer live in Cuba her whole life?
0: Yes. So forgive me because I don't know the politics very well. I highly recommend if you want to read this book, also reading the essay that the translator wrote about her Uh, And in it, he talks a little bit about how at the time when she was, uh, you know, doing the most writing and living in Cuba, a lot of other artists and writers became expats. Right. Because it was a dictatorship and she was silenced. Her poetry was silenced because she wasn't a political poet, but it was edgy enough And it wasn't in praise of the dictatorship. And so I know that she had to stop writing, at least publishing for a while. Uh, And so, um, in protest of that, a lot of the other writers left the country and she did not. And I think that she was really heavily criticized for that decision. But I mean, she stayed in her home country. That's what she wanted to do. The consequences of that, that she accepted, were that she wouldn't be able to publish in her own country. I think her book first came out in spain but the consequences maybe she didn't know were that she was a little bit ostracized from the expatriate cuban writers who i think questioned her solidarity which is sad i mean you talk about someone who knows about absolute solitude oh
1: that's beautiful thank
0: you for introducing me you're so welcome i'm so excited to get to introduce you to a new poet yeah, I can't wait for you to read this book.
1: Yay. Um, I've expressed this frustration to you that in these quarantines I've found kind of a hard time connecting with contemporary voices. Yeah. Um, I've been like most visiting my my book hauls, I have ordered some books off of the internet and had them delivered to my home. And it's just like, it's not that the poetry has been bad, it's that I have not been able to connect with it, given this current season that we're in. But this past weekend, I continued chipping away at my enormous nightstand pile, and I dug into Mary Rufel's Book Dunce. Yeah. Now, have you been a
0: reader of hers for a while, or is this the first work of hers you've read?
1: When I worked at Malvern, I had so much access, and when I interned with Wave, they sent me a ton of her work, and I've definitely enjoyed it, but this time I was able to digest and really savor her words and let them sit, and it just feels like the perfect time to read Mary Ruffell for some reason. Can I uh, sidebar
0: really quickly? Yeah.
1: Um, I agree. I
0: think that she's a great poet to be reading right now and a contemporary poet who is older and so has a totally different voice than the younger generation. And I just want to say that I saw her read at AWP years ago. I believe it was in Seattle. And for her reading, one of her poems was a performance piece and she folded a fitted sheet and it took like four minutes. And it was amazing.
1: That performance is so iconic that I've heard about it in great detail from multiple people. And even though I was not there, every three weeks when I fold my fitted sheets, I think about Mary Ruffle And <laughs> I think that performance might be online somewhere. So definitely look it up to see if that's it. I just know it's something that I should have been at. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, I think it's an
0: interesting and I'm sorry, I'm not I'm not trying to derail you at all. Love this. I just think it's an interesting it's an interesting thing for any poet now to be doing performance art. And I'm into it. And for it to be so domestic. I mean, really, what an uncool thing to fold a fitted sheet. It's just annoying. And you would think it would just be a kind of joke, but she did it beautifully.
1: Oh my God. Do not get me started on my newfound love for domesticity. All right. We have to love it now. We have to, to survive. My husband was expressing kind of a mourning for this quarantine and which he thought as well as Every single person thought this would be a great time for productivity. And I let go of that notion a few weeks in, but I found a love for how meditative, something as simple as doing dishes or I guess folding a fitted sheet. And it was this huge revelation for me that our lives, of course, can be built on the books that we write and the poems and the screenplays and the films and all of these things we consume and create. But our lives are truly built in the moment when we are washing dishes late at night. Yeah. When we are cleaning the restroom on Saturday mornings. Um, Just these little snippets that occur twice a day or at least weekly. Yeah. And I'm like, I really need to make these moments beautiful. Light a candle, play some music when you're doing these things that otherwise feel mundane. So,
0: oh, I love that so much in art, and just the the domestic pleasure of being in your own body, Um, even if your body is in pain or exhausted um, or if you're experiencing anxiety, there is a meditative quality to the care and the cleaning and, you know, all of those little domestic things that feel like chores, they are chores. But yeah, if if you can reframe your perspective a little bit, those are those are some pretty powerful moments where you can kind of touch in to, I don't know, the soul in a way that you think you can only do with, like you said, the creative output or input. <sighs> This is a perfect like framing of Mary Rufel's work, though, because she is a very domestic poet.
1: Yeah, I guess that's probably what I have found comfort in, the pacing of this work and the space in which it lives, because I felt like all these other books that I've been reading are so out in the world that I cannot be in, that I'm forbidden from being in. Yeah. And this one just feels like, dunce um just feels like it's it's of the mind but also the body it feels very meditative and I feel like that's the best use of our time right
0: yeah now. that's a great point Mary Ruffel's poems are in rooms right a lot of the time or even smaller spaces than that mm-hmm. she's a poet I think of as, and I can't think of it, I don't have a specific poem in mind or in front of me, but I think of her as a poet who would describe a fork to you in a way, like a special fork that had been passed down through generations or something like that, and <laughs> somehow create this mind-bending poem that is about a fork.
1: She has a way. I would like to go ahead and mention that I had ordered the subscription from Wave and came in with a ton of other Wave books, and I... Had set this one aside for a rainy day. So I was working my way down and just nothing seemed as satisfying. And I'm like, let me just get something that I know is going to be good and feel right. And so soon after, I heard that Dunce was a finalist for the Pulitzer this year.
0: Oh, amazing! Congratulations, Mary Rufal. Isn't that so exciting? I haven't read Dunce yet, so I'm really excited to hear what you like about it
1: or uh, maybe even a little piece of it. So, this first poem does not exist in a room, but it could easily exist in a room. (laughs) This poem is titled Apple in Water. I was swimming with a taste of apple in my mouth, a shred of apple skin between my teeth, I guess. Doesn't get any better than this, said the water. These are troubled times, said the shred, and the apple. The apple wasn't really there, only a lingering taste of it, as if it were the last apple, or an earlier one that had lasted. Either way, it was silent, and I swam with the silence in my mouth, listening to the pretty crimson dot, and the great slipping glimpser, not knowing whether I heard a night of love or a love of night, such was the knowledge gained during the long language swim.
0: Wow. Speaking of a meditation. That is the first poem in this book. (laughs) What? (laughs) That's great. Yeah, she just, she has a way of getting small. Mm -hmm. This is so corny. I don't know how to say this intelligently. She has a way of getting small and thereby also reflecting magnitudes. Mm -hmm. The taste of apple is sort of disembodied from herself. And it's like the taste of apple is floating in space. And also is like, the water says it doesn't get any better than this, but the shred and the taste uh, have a different idea about what's really happening. There's a little bit of destruction and sorrow in there as well. It's really lovely.
1: Perspective. This poem just does so much that by the end, I'm just like, whoa. (laughs) I
0: think of its strategy as, as like, there's a figure floating in a natural body of water and the poem starts inside the mouth and then it maybe travels out and starts to orbit the figure and makes wider and wider circles but it's always sort of grounded or fixed to this particular moment or this particular place and sensation. I don't know, that, that kind of orbiting strategy is such a cool thing where a poet, especially a poet writing now, doesn't feel like they have to kind of be ADD and bring everything into the poem. I speak on my own behalf <laughs> as a poet. I want my poems to be so chock full of the world. This poem is, but it's in this small, simple way where it really doesn't deviate from that original sensation of the taste of apple. It builds on it, but it stays there.
1: Uh, One of my favorite parts of this is either way, it was silent and I swam with the silence in my mouth listening to the pretty crimson dot. (sighs) I love that though. She gets so small, but somehow at the same time just explodes into the universe.
0: Yes, exactly. The moment of listening to the tiny crimson dot. That's a little synesthesia there, but it's it's also those moments that I love in a poem where you can't really decode it, you know? It doesn't have a direct correlation or a direct meaning. The tiny crimson dot is the apple, is the taste of apple, is the sound of a bird flying by overhead, is the sound of water when your ears are below the surface. It's all of those things rolled into one and you can't say which one it absolutely is a metaphor for, it's unknowable. And yet it opens all of these other dimensions for your mind to explore. That's what I love in a poem. And I think when she, when writers like her have this simplicity and this domesticity about them where, okay, let's talk about the taste of apple and having that, You know, that very human sensation we can all relate to of having a shred of apple skin stuck between your teeth or floating in water. Those very knowable, obvious, simple situations in the poem that subtly give rise to the unknowable. Um, That's really, man, goals. (laughs)
1: Um, I'll read another one to you. I don't know where this will fit in our conversation. I just thought it was so funny where it begins and where it ends. Humor is so necessary right now. This is the time for comedy. This poem also reminded me of Julie Howd. Ooh. Yeah, I really feel like as I'm reading this, the two of them are akin. Julie was at the forefront of my mind for a lot of these poems. Let me read to you a morning person. What a beautiful day for a wedding. It was raining when we buried my mum. She loved lilacs, and here they are. The lilac lilacs, like pendulous, large breasts dripping with dew. I am enjoying them alone with my mug of coffee, which I also enjoy with the intensity of remark made in a surgical theater. Soon I will vacuum the day. Not a speck of it will remain. I will suck it up like a bee at the tit making a hoopla. But now it is quiet. Hardly anyone is dressed. Not a doggy is walking. I think flowers enjoy their solitude in the early dawn before the buzz begins. I think sprinklers annoy them. I hear one coming on. I hate my poems. Yes. (laughs) The word hoopla,
0: (laughs) first of all, is choice. And that is a big Julie Howard connection right Mm -hmm. there. That's a word she would be all over.
1: The first line was so Julie asked me. What a beautiful day for a wedding.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man, that is so true. They are really
1: soulmates
0: (laughs) in a poetic sense.
1: This poem... It starts with, what a beautiful day for a wedding, and it ends with, I hate my poems.
0: Ugh, that is so hilarious and so relatable. Ugh,
1: this is fun. Yeah. And so unexpected. But that's how, like, I hope you have a healthy self-esteem. But your hatred for yourself often comes out of just nowhere.
0: Honestly, all poets are writing from a hatred of the self. I think that is (laughs) a truth as much as we love ourselves. She's just naming it. She's very brazen in that way.
1: Yeah, it didn't come off as pure hatred to where it's concerning. Right. But just in the way that, like, you're going about your day and you're like seeing how magical and beautiful and deep and rich life truly is. And then you look at the poem on your typewriter as you're walking back to the kitchen after enjoying this moment, and you're like, ugh.
0: <laughs> so true. That's so true. And that's the turn between what a beautiful day for a wedding. And then I've taken all of this down on my paper. If the line what a beautiful day for a wedding is in earnest, and I don't know without examining the poem further, but let's just say that it is, Then you write the poem and you realize that it absolutely is meaningless in the face of the actual experience.
1: What would you say is a beautiful day for a wedding?
0: Man, not the day I got married.
1: (laughs) Wait, what was the weather like
0: on that day? So the lucky thing was that it did rain, but it rained in the morning and we got married in the evening. And by the evening, it was clear and sunny, but it was hot. And people
1: were, I think, a little miserable. We were outside, but. You started working with hosts right around the time that I was married. So you could probably remember it was February, which in Austin is the coldest month. Um, Yes. It had rained as well. But I thought it was the most beautiful day for a wedding because it had this like Twin Peaks vibe to it Mm -hmm. where it was foggy (laughs) and we were out in the hill country. So a beautiful green fog had fallen. And it was so beautiful and so green and hazy. Yeah.
0: That sounds amazing. And I think, by the way, what is a beautiful day for a wedding? I think a cold day, a foggy cold day is actually really great. That's not the first thing most people are going to say, but I actually think that's that's really lovely.
1: I wonder if in this poem it was because the next line is it was raining when we buried my mom. What would Mary Rufel think? is a beautiful
0: day for a wedding. She doesn't answer that question, which is nice because it gives us all this opportunity to imagine. Yes.
1: Yeah, this is, this is a great read. Um, you're
0: going to love it. <laughs> From all of us at Host Publications, thanks for listening. We hope you're staying safe out there and getting all of the support that you need. For quarantine resources, including resources for writers, tips for working from home, and specially curated reading lists, please check out the You Are Not Alone series on our blog at hostpublications.com and stay tuned for the next conversation.